natural disasters. They're a way of life on planet Earth. We heard recently of a tornado that uh, passed through Georgia, part of Georgia. Hurricanes and floods and snowstorms have hit the coastal regions and our continent this winter. A year ago, we were thinking about flooding in North Dakota. And from all around the world, news routinely reaches us of natural disasters that scar the face of the earth and that snuff out lives. But in the kind providence of God, these natural disasters tend to strike, I think, would you not agree, in relatively confined parameters. Last year's earthquake in Japan, if anybody even remembers it, uh, it was an interest to us, but we certainly didn't fear for our lives. A hurricane blasts the East Coast. We take time to maybe watch some of the devastation on the evening news, but we do not start boarding up our windows here in, in Minneapolis. When Mount St. Helens blew its top in the early 80s, our summer temperatures were affected, but not our lifestyles, unless it meant that we wore a few more clothes in the summer, a few heavier coats once in a while in the summer. But we instinctively conceive of natural disasters as isolated occurrences. If we went to the University of Minnesota and talked to the 50,000-plus students and teachers and brought all of them down a line and asked them one question, identify the worst natural disaster of history. I'm sure that many would answer the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 63 AD. They may not know the date, but I think many would think along those lines. There have been many eruptions of this volcano in southern Italy, but on August 24, 63 AD, Vesuvius exploded and buried the ancient cities of Pompeii and Stabai. The, the eruption also triggered a mud flow that buried a third city, Herculaneum. When is the last time on the evening news or in the newspaper you read about three cities being completely wiped out by one natural disaster? Mount Vesuvius is remembered 1,935 years later. But that was not the greatest natural disaster in Earth's history. And what is sad is if we went to any of the leading Christian evangelical universities in our country and asked the same question of its students and faculty, the majority would still fail to answer correctly. God's Word reveals that several thousand years ago there was a universal flood that destroyed everything on Earth. To say it mildly, this event is not emphasized in the minds of most Americans as they consider natural history. We are comfortable thinking about natural disasters as confined events that strike somebody else, but our culture has no room in its collective conscience for a universal flood. I say in its conscience, not in its imagination. People are very willing to contemplate the possibilities of, say, a, a meteorite shower that would destroy the earth in the future, as long as what goes along with it is the idea that they might find a way to escape the disaster or some way that we can prepare for it. People aren't so concerned about conjecture, about looking into the future, about theory, or about science fiction. But people are not willing to consider a past destruction of planet Earth. There's no room for such thinking in our collective conscience. Not even among many Christians now who are agreeing with unbelievers that the flood of Genesis 7 is either a myth or was a localized event that was just conceived as a worldwide flood. 
Why does the godless world so vehemently resist the notion of a universal flood? I think it is in that question that lights began to be lighted in my mind as I thought through this passage. Connections began to be made to our culture and our world around. Why is it that our culture does not talk about a universal flood in the past? I think the answer is that the flood account, like the creation account, tells man just what he does not want to hear. Think of it in two areas. First of all, cosmogony. That is, how did everything get here? Origins. Think about it in the area of origins. God has structured this world so that his word alone reveals essential truth about origins. His word alone, that is, God gives us, that's not to say that scientists cannot come up with ideas and know truth as they discover things that are really fact, but it is to say that God's word holds truth that cannot be discovered. His word alone is a repository of truth that tells us essential facts about creation. But man rejects that truth because he gags at the implications of the existence of an all-powerful creator God. So when it comes to the origin of the earth, man cannot deny that it exists. He just invents the preposterous theory that it all evolved. He just deletes the creator God from his worldview. Now let's look at it when it comes to the destruction of the earth or to our earth today as it now exists. God has structured his world again so that his word alone reveals essential truth about this planet. Again, it's not to say that scientists cannot discover ideas and learn things about our world, but it is to say that there are some truths, there are facts that only God's word reveals. Geology and anthropology and paleontology and related disciplines are absolutely dependent upon what God has told us. But again, mankind gags on this truth and refuses to accept the notion of a universal flood in Genesis 7. Why? For the same reason that he rejects the creation account. If God created the world, what does that mean? He's creator. We just can't have that. If God destroyed the world, what does that mean? He's judge. We certainly cannot have that. In his rebellious self-deification, man cannot have a God who can both make him and destroy him. And so the Genesis account of creation and the Genesis account of destruction, the flood, are summarily dismissed. We live in such a world. And again, just just look at what's happening in our Christian universities to find out how much that world influences what we believe about the Bible. As much as that should not be the case. We live in a world that believes this way, that thinks this way, that denies God as creator, and that denies that God has anything to say about this world and how we should understand it, this earth. The antidote to it is truth. Solid biblical truth starting not on the outside and what the scientists say and what culture seems to dictate and then understanding the Bible in light of the outside world, but looking first at the Scriptures and saying we start here. So let's do that this morning. We come humbly before the text of Scripture. We strip aside all that we know scientifically or quote-unquote know. We strip aside all preconceived notions and we come before the text as the truth. 
we accept what God says about his planet. And he tells us in most certain terms that on a specific day in human history, he destroyed the surface of the earth. It is a truth not intended to merely satisfy our curiosity, but a truth which will bring us face to face with our God and thereby transform our lives. First, before we enter chapter 7, let's remind ourselves of verse 6 and where we've come to this point. Genesis 6 and verses 1 through 4 trace out the idea of God's people beginning to follow the ways of a godless culture, becoming tainted by it. In verses 5 through 7 of chapter 6, God sees this world. Remember that word. He sees this world. He sees the moral ruin and he determines to judge the earth, to destroy it. In verse 8, Noah is exempted from this pending destruction. In verse 9, we read, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. We're introduced to his sons in verse 10. In verses 11 and 12, we find that the earth has become corrupt. There's a sense of a repetition here, verses 5, 6, and 7. The earth is corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. We talked about that as being ethical violence as well as physical last week. Verses 13 then, chapter 6, verses 13 through to verse 21. God instructs Noah to build a massive ark to see to it that nests are made for two of every kind of animal We talked about that hard, hard work for 120 years, according to chapter 6 and verse 3. Now, verse 22 of chapter 6, Noah did everything just as the Lord commanded him. The Lord then said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. The Lord. There's a shift in the emphasis of the name of the Lord here. Yahweh is the Hebrew word. It speaks of intimacy and care. This was payday for Noah. 120 years of construction. Now the job was finally done. And we ask the question, why is it again that Noah is chosen to escape the pending disaster? Verse 1 says, I have found you righteous. That Hebrew word found is actually the same word that was used earlier to see. I have seen you as righteous would be a good way to translate the passage. I have seen you as righteous. God has seen the wickedness of man, and He has seen the righteousness of Noah, and He acts. But it is, I have seen you as righteousness. It's not, Noah, your works have made you righteous. You have earned this trip. It's not that. But it's, I have seen you as righteous. In the eyes of God, he has declared Noah righteous. In other words, as we would put it together with New Testament truth, righteousness is imputed to our account. It's placed on our account. All righteousness is of God. We have seen that throughout the text of Scripture, that we are depraved to the core. But righteousness from God can be imputed to people who thereby live out that righteousness. Righteousness, And Noah obviously evidenced this imputation by his deeds. He built an ark for 120 years against his godless culture. You see that at the end of verse 1, in this generation. It goes back to chapter 6, verse 5 and following. God sees the wickedness of the unrighteous world. He sees the righteousness of Noah in his generation. That is, Noah was distinct. He was different. He was not sucked into the godlessness of his world, but he was a righteous man. 
God continues then to instruct Noah concerning the pending journey. Verse 2, Take with you seven of every kind of clean animal, a male and its female, and two of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. The translation that we have here, seven of every kind, really obscures the Hebrew, which reads, strangely enough, seven, seven. Take seven, seven of every kind of clean. And I think what it means is seven pairs. So there's actually 14 that are going up. There's always been the picture that there's seven. That's two, 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 and one. And that last one is due for sacrifice when the ark lands. Well, that's not really the point. I think the point is, again, in the Hebrew, it's seven. And if we could add the comma, it's seven, comma, seven. So you have pairs, mate, male, and female, male, and female, seven, seven. There are seven clean animals. Before Jesus died as the final and fully sufficient sacrifice for sin, God's people were required to offer animal sacrifices in the worship of God. But not any animal would do. Only animals that God designated as clean animals could be used for sacrifice in approaching God. This class of animal was carefully codified under the Mosaic Law in Leviticus chapter 11, but obviously God had revealed this truth earlier. It's clear when we look at Abel's sacrifice, it's clear when we come here. He speaks of clean animals. Noah knows who the clean animals are, which animals are clean. Now why Noah was to bring seven pairs of clean animals, we can only speculate. But uh, it's very possible that they were intended for sacrifice. Some of them would have been used for sacrifice, were used for sacrifice immediately. And so if you had only two of one kind of clean animal and you knocked off one of them in sacrifice when you landed on the ark, that would be the end of that kind. So certainly sacrifice is involved. There, more of these are, are involved so that they can be sacrificed. Secondly, I think would also be food. Noah was very likely instructed, like Moses, there's certain animals you don't eat. Well, again, if there's animals that are going to be killed for eating, there needs to be some extra of those animals. Uh, and these clean animals tend to be the kind of animals that are in flocks and are herded and that type of thing. And so they would also serve for food for wild animals uh, as, as the ark lands and as, life, as the earth is again populated uh, with both flora and fauna. There is this need for food for such as a lion, let's say, or a bear. Uh, there's going to be need for food before a uh, second generation is birthed. Maybe some of that took place in the ark. We won't talk about it this week. We talked about it last week that that's very unlikely, that, that any animals were born on the ark. There's probably a sense of hibernation taking place. But at any rate, he's to take two, at least, of every kind. Now, just answer, just clearly, in your own mind, from this text of Scripture, is this a local flood? In, in our limited abilities, if we are playing the place of God, and there's going to be a great, devastating local flood, and it's not going to come for 120 years. Would you tell somebody to pile all the animals in a boat? You just say, go somewhere, right? Migrate to a place where there's not going to be a flood. From God's original warning, chapter 6 and verse 3, Noah had 120 years to migrate to a new location where the flood would not strike. But we notice the second part of verse 3. That the point of building this ark is to what? To keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. 
that could be accomplished only by retreat to the ark, not by migration to dry ground. Well, then God fills in some details concerning his intention to flood the earth. Verse 4 says, Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. Noah has seven more days to prepare for forty days and forty nights of rainfall. That's impossible in our world. It cannot rain for 40 days and 40 nights. There is simply not enough water in our atmosphere to produce that type of rain. But let's keep your finger here. Let's go back to Genesis 1 and verse 2. How can there be so much rain, 40 days and 40 nights? Again, if we just attend to the text, the answer is clear. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. We see here this chaotic state of water. In verses 6 through 8 of chapter 1, then we read, God says, let there be an expanse between the waters that separate, to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. And there is the second day. In other words, there's a blanket of invisible water, vapor, we believe, surrounding the earth in its atmosphere so that there's water above. Everywhere that's earth, there's water above and there's water on the surface of the earth. Now, we remember as we studied this, this protective layer created a greenhouse effect upon the entire earth. Get the picture in your mind just here. We'll come back to it. The earth is covered with lush vegetation protected by this canopy. Somehow this water canopy would condense and fall upon the earth, expunging every living thing from the face of the ground. God pledges here to wipe out every living thing. The root word for wipe out or the King James destroy is to expunge by washing. He's going to wash mankind right from the face of the earth to erase sinners. How many? What does verse 4 say? Every living creature I have made. That includes it all. We read that important note again in verse 5, And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. How Noah built out the inside of the ark, how he got food on board, how he got the animals to eat, what all of those things, they're not the point. Really, the point is here that Noah obeyed. He had started well on this 450-foot ark. He had started to build it. For 120 years, he brought it to completion. When he got to the end, he wasn't too big for God. He just continued to obey right to the end. Noah obeyed throughout this period. Now, let me stop at this point and prepare you for the rest uh, where we'll head today. What we are going to read at this point in the narrative is going to seem almost irritatingly repetitive. It is repetitive. We might be tempted to say, come on with it. We've heard this already. What's the point? Well, we need to remember that we are not reading literature written by a chatty old man that can't remember what he just told you. And so he says it again, and then he says it again later down the road. That's not what we're reading. Noah, or Moses, who wrote this book, and of course it's coming from Noah, but I think Moses put this down into this form. Mo Moses knows how to get on with a story, doesn't he? I mean, look at the details that he gives to the inside of the ark. None. 
The people in this ark are going to be in there for over a year, and he doesn't say one word about their relationship together, about if they got on each other's nerves or what took place or how it all happened. He, he skips by all kinds of things that we might think he would consider. But this author, who knows very well how to get on with a story, how to put just the essential element, continually repeats himself in chapter 7. Why? We must understand it, that ancient narratives commonly repeated ideas for emphasis. You could say what you find here in chapter 7 in about three sentences. But God takes this information and he drills it into our heads. There's to be no misunderstanding. It's almost as if God took 10 or 15 snapshots of the same event. And he hands it to you. And you look at the first one and you see it. You look at the second. You say, that's just about the same. You look at the third. It's just about the same as the last one. He keeps throwing pictures out to us. But in these pictures, there's something unique that, is, that finds its way into the text with each unique picture. But they are all very similar pictures of the same event. There's to be no misunderstanding. Noah did exactly what God told him and God did exactly what he said he would do. It is as if God holds these pictures before us to contemplate carefully over and over as we go throughout the text. So, realize there's repetition here, but it's here for a purpose. Verse 6, Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. That points to a definitive occasion where this flood came. And Noah, verse 7, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. The Hebrew word here for flood also indicates to us that this is a universal flood. It's the Hebrew word mabul. It's never used again in the Old Testament. And the New Testament as well uses a unique word for this flood. In other words, every time there's a flood, it uses a different word. But this time, there was the mabul. There was the flood, the ultimate flood like no other. Now concerning the animals, verse 8, pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. Verses 7 and 9, you see how they're just assumed in verse 5. God says, bring all these animals, and Noah did it. We don't even have to hear this. But God, again, holds before us this picture, once again, of this event of all the animals coming two by two into the ark. We need to notice here that the words here in verse 8, the words used here to describe the animals that entered the ark are the very words that are used on creative day 6. And so God is making it clear to us that everything that he created, the animals of the field, the creeping things, the birds of the air, he made them all, now he destroys them all. In other words, God created all the animals he can destroy all the animals, and that's what he's preparing to do. As these animals march in pairs up the plank, um, we talked about last week how that might be possible, an ominous aura hangs in the air. For 120 years, Noah has preached righteousness. For 120 years, people have gone on their merry way, ignoring or mocking him, as the New Testament makes clear. But now... What are they saying? Did you hear the news? You know, that guy building that big old whatever thing out there? It's 450 feet long, 50 feet high. Did you hear about this guy? Now he's filling it with animals. 
I mean, they have been looking up at this thing as it's developing for 120 years, and now all these animals are going inside. I'm sure Noah uh, was the brunt of many jokes on that day. For seven days, he and his sons directing animals to their places in this ark. Verse 10 then reads, And after the seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. No one was laughing anymore. As one commentator puts it well, Noah does what God says, and God does what God says. The time for His mercy, the time for His grace, the time for Him to endure the sins of people ends. It's time for judgment. The rains come. Verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, we've heard that already, haven't we? We already heard that Noah was 600 years. But we have this added point on the 17th day of the second month on that day. We don't know what calendar is being used here, if it's the Jewish calendar. In other words, it came uh, through oral tradition what day the flood actually hit. And now the Jews have taken it to correlate it to the months of their calendar. We don't know if that's it or if this is how old Noah is or whatever. But at any rate, it's very obvious there's a very specific day. This is not a myth. This is a historical account. On this day, verse 11, we note then that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. This is vital information showing us two sources of these floodwaters. What's the first source? The springs of the great deep burst forth. Going back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, we read there of the water on the surface of the earth. In chapter 2 and verse 5, we read what? We read that there's been no rain. And we also read in the creative account in Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 through 14, if you want to notice it there, that there are flowing rivers. Now how do we put all this together? There's no rain... But there are flowing rivers. I think partly it can be the runoff of condensation. That could be part of how the rivers flow. But these appear to be fairly substantial rivers. How do you get rivers without rain? As scientists uh, tell us, creation scientists, the indication is that water from the ocean supplied channels and reservoirs below the surface of the earth. And so, in a sense, all of the earth was was, had water on it or in it, though it wasn't all covered. There was dry land and there was water, but there is the water that is underneath the ground and supplying water to the surface. These subterranean reservoirs could have been pressurized, possibly by heat generated below the surface, and water then forced to the surface would supply the rivers, which would flow back into the ocean, and the whole system would continue just as our system does today with rain. As volcanoes illustrate, subterranean sources of heat are obviously present. Artesian wells and geysers and these kinds of things evidence that water can be naturally forced to the surface. And that apparently is what was the case. Now we know as we look at miracles in the Bible, there's a very simple principle. And that is that God always uses the least phenomenal means possible. He always uses nature as far as nature can go to accomplish his purposes through miracles. And so it would be fair to surmise that a rise in temperature under the earth's surface may have caused a series of subterranean channels to explode. This would have weakened the entire hydraulic system underneath the earth and created a domino effect 
of explosions across uh, on the surface of the of the earth. The result would be a volcanic type of activity, magma exploding from the earth's mantle, volcanic dust blown skyward. Uh, Henry Morris has said it this way, the combination of atmospheric turbulence expanding and cooling gases and a vast supply of dust and other particles to serve as nuclei of condensation would suffice to penetrate the upper canopy of water vapor and trigger another chain reaction there, causing its waters to begin to condense and coalesce and soon to start moving earthward, earthward as a torrential global downpour of rain. Well, that's all just conjecture. We weren't there. God doesn't tell us exactly how it happened, but he does tell us there was this bursting forth out of the ground, this type of volcanic explosions on the face of the earth, and the windows of heaven, the second source of the floods there in verse 11, where it caused torrential rains. This canopy bursts open, breaks open, somehow it condenses, and what was invisible water canopy above the earth now comes down in torrential rains for 40 days and 40 nights. It's unimaginable to us. It's not our world, but it's what God says happened. In verse 12, the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Then once again, we find repetition, beginning with verse 13. We go back and forth between the ark and the flood, the ark and the flood. We go back in time now, back to the ark on, in verse 13. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and wives of his three sons, entered the ark. We need to get a little bit of a sense of what's happening here. There's this ominous word from God that this is the day. And as they get on that ark, these waters uh, begin to burst forth from, uh, from underneath the ground, and the water begins to come down from heaven, and they're inundated in this ark. But they had with them, verse 14, every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kind, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. We've read all that before. We know all this. But again, the text puts before us the picture. They're all in the ark. They all get inside. Then we read in verse 16 at the at last phrase, Then the Lord shut him in. Boom! The door comes shut somehow. I don't know how God does it. Apparently Noah's not prepared to shut the ark. He's just done what God has told him to do, and God shuts the ark. There is apparently something of a miracle here. He did what God told him to do, and he trusted God to do what only God can do. So the door slams shut. Noah and his riders begin to adjust to the sounds and the smells and the strange sensations in their box. It would be their home for a very long time. Well, now we go back outside the ark. Verse 17, for 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, those within the ark began to feel a sensation. They lifted, the waters lifted the ark high above the earth. The ark begins to float. Verse 18, the waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heaven were covered. Verse 17 says they kept coming. The, the Hebrew actually is to prevail, to be mighty, to be strong. The waters are strong on the surface of the earth. So the subterranean channels are exploding as torrential rains are pouring down upon the ark. But God had shut the door, and God protects Noah, his crew, and his passengers. 
Verse 19 brings out all the mountains under the entire heavens were covered. Well, if you can find a mountain that's not under the heavens, then there's a place where it didn't rain. But it says very clearly, every mountain under the entire heavens was covered. If we're going to take the biblical account, then it's a universal, absolute, complete deluge. There's no land anywhere. And we note again the repetitive phrases and the strong language. Look at verses 17 through 19 and see the repeating phrases. Verse 17, they increased. They were lift, the ark was lifted high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly. Verse 19, they rose greatly. All the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The text is seeking to help us see this covered everything. The waters were great. They were mighty on the earth. There was no land anywhere. You couldn't say it any more clearly than it's said here. The earth was flooded entirely. Verse 20 further attempts to clear away any confusion. As it reads, the waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. All right? You still have questions. Was there a mountain somewhere? How high were the mountains? How high was the water? He goes and says, he gives a figure here, actually 15 cubits, which is basically what the draft of the ark would be. And I think the main point is not so much that uh, Noah was out there sounding the depths of the highest mountains and checking with a big long ruler to see how far it was. The point is, you couldn't touch anywhere. The ark would float over every mountain on the whole face of the earth, wherever it went. The point is, somebody might say, well, where Noah was, he was floating, but maybe on the other side of the world, there was a mountain that kind of stuck its peak up somewhere. This verse puts that idea to rest. You take the highest mountain on earth, the highest peak, you go 20 feet above it, that's where the waters were at least, depending on where you were, what the topography was under that flood. We go back to repetition. Seeking to sustain the dramatic tension, we look again at the same event, a little different picture, verse 21. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind, everything on dry land that has the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. What more can the Bible say? What more can human language convey? Everybody died. Everything was covered. The world was absolutely destroyed. But there's people who trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior there's teachers right now in Christian universities saying, well, that's not really what happened. And certainly there is in our world great opposition to this theme. Let's stop for a moment and just consider. Okay, we're not going to listen to what the world says. We're not going to listen to the latest theme of, of the Christian uh, movement that is trying to, to look acceptable in the eyes of the world. We're just going to take it at face value. If somebody has the least bit of scientific interest and ability, the implications of what we have just read present a fertile field for contemplation scientifically. Go back to what the world looked like. We have lush forests and fields that covered the entire globe. They were buried, providing ample source for the Earth's present coal beds. The canopy is gone, causing temperatures at the poles to what? To plummet. 
and temperature at the equator to rise. We have an ice age. And that is why scientists have found woolly mammoths on the North Pole encased in ice with green foliage in their stomachs. How do you figure that? This is how it happened. Pretty simple. It means that there were massive upheavals of the Earth's surface as the waters began to assuage into newly formed lakes and oceans, redeposition of eroded materials resulting in stratified uh, sedimentary rock formations on the Earth's crust. It's estimated that the average thickness of a sedimentary rock layer is one mile. And it's agreed that in a flood, the rate of deposition, this, this muck, the, you know, the dirt, the junk that's left when water leaves, that's what we're talking about. It's underneath the water. It's, it's coming down in sediment. It's agreed that, that that is formed at one inch every five minutes, which means that it would have only taken 220 days to form a mile-long column of sedimentary rock under the flood conditions. But we have much more than 120 days here, as the text will go on to describe. A universal flood would explain why fossils are so abundant in sedimentary deposits. So abundant that scientists date the supposed age of the deposit by the fossils found in it. But we all know that the preservation of fossils requires what? Rapid burial. What happens to that fish that washes up on the dead fish that washes up on the shore of the lake? Is that going to make a good fossil? Well, what do you see there? You're on the summer, you're walking along the lake shore, and uh, you jump back all of a sudden. There's that gross-looking thing staring up at you. There's just an eye left, you know, and then some bones. Why? There's flies, there's animals, there's scavengers that are eating the flesh. And what happens to the bones? They begin to bake in the sun. Are those bones going to make a nice fossil there on that beach? Never. Never in your wildest dreams. No one would ever think so. It requires rapid burial for a fossil to be made. Why does all over the earth, the entire earth, when we dig down, we find all kinds of fossils? Rapid burial on a worldwide event. Rapid burial is necessary for fossilization. The strata of Earth's sedimentary rock formations is filled with similar fossils. And so it means that there was a universal flood. That doesn't mean it. It's, we start with Scripture. We wouldn't know that without Scripture, but we start there. We can see it. Rapid burial uh, and fossilization. Now, I'm not pretending to raise every question or answer all the objections. I'm only saying this because of time. The way mankind today views our earth is not logical. It's immoral. Now, that's not to say that scientists can't give us some great ideas and really discover truth and real discoveries about our earth. It's not to say that. It's not to say that we can only go to the Bible and we can't listen to anybody else. It's not to say that at all. But it's to say that when that scientist is digging through some sedimentary rock and trying to, to discover what's down there, he's going to be driven by what he believes is truth. And if he does not believe what God has said, he starts off with the wrong presupposition. He's never going to come to the final answers. He denies a creator God, and he therefore cannot see a judging God. But God is a righteous judge, who indeed wiped man off the face of the earth. As much as I'd like to keep talking about the scientific implications, we need to look past just our physical planet and what it means to science, and we need to begin to look beyond that at what it means about our God. And I call your attention just a little bit further. I know this is lengthy, but follow me as we bring this to a head, as I believe we should. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 38. 
If it's possible to keep your finger back in Genesis and then look at Matthew 24 and we're going to look at 2 Peter as well. Just very briefly, if you'll hang with me here for a little while, we'll bring this together as I believe we need to bring it together when we consider this universal flood. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 38, we learn that the universal flood was not the last time that the world will be destroyed. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 38, For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Lost humanity has a vested interest in ignoring the universal flood. Earth science testifies to the destruction of the entire earth, but man is so busy trying to prove evolution he cannot see reality. A universal flood, ah, that's just dismissed. We really can't dismiss origins. We've got to talk about that. So we come up with evolution. But it comes to the flood, we just dismiss it. That's a myth. That's a fairy tale. That's a bunch of foolishness. Am I right? Is that what most unbelievers, those who are running from God, whether they know it or not, is that not how most of them view a universal flood? Is that not what I was taught at the university to understand about the biblical accounts? It is. It's just the common way of viewing this theme, the flood. It just, hey, it might look nice as a decoration in a kid's room or something, but there's no reality to this. Second Peter confirms that that's exactly the case. Second Peter chapter 3. Now, if you're following me, if you're with me still at this point, these words have got to stand up and scream in light of Genesis chapter 7. And they have to, I think, confirm what has been said and the theme and the way in which this passage has been developed today. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 6, when we speak of this flood being something people don't want to see, look at verse 6 of Second Peter chapter 3. By these waters also... I'm sorry, I need to go back to verse 3. Second Peter 3 and verse 3. First of all, you must understand... 